Hello and welcome back to Casting Nets Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Will Harley. I am joined here with Don Winsberger. He is he is done hunting for a little bit. He is back from a pastoral conference, and uh, he's got some new knowledge that is just swelling his brain. I can see it over the over the screen now. Uh, he also made a run and, and grabbed something that is just fabulous for, for all the good Irish people out there. Uh, I, he has been hovering around a, a bottle of Jameson with, uh, what is it, Black Barrel? Black Barrel Jameson? Black Barrel, yes. Yeah, so uh, unfortunately I won't be able to to drive over there and, and have a little bit of that, but but I, I'm going to wait until he tastes it, and if it's good, I might have to grab myself some of that uh, for, for these nice cold winter nights that are are going to be soon upon us. And since this is a religious program, I'm going to wait until the program's over until I have a, sh- a sip of this. <laughs> yes, we, we do not condone drinking and working at the same time. <laughs> so... That's that's the schwermer inside of me. There you speaking. go. There you go. Uh, good job there, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was a, a Lutheran satirism. <laughs> and it goes with the O'Doul's I'm drinking. So, <laughs> But we welcome you to the show as we, we gather. We're continuing our conversation on the uh, unaltered Augsburg Confession. We have a, a, a lot that we're going to be hitting today here. We got Article 4, Article 5, Article 14, Article 23, and Article 27 that we're all going to try to touch in, in our hour's worth of time that we have together. And, Can uh, I just tell them what, what those articles are about? We're not going to read them. Um, we've got uh, Article 4 on justification, the teaching by which the church stands or falls, ministry, order in the church, marriage of priests and monastic vows, which kind of maybe goes into some West River Lutheran teachings, but we'll, we'll, we'll touch that later. Very good. And so, as you can already tell, we have views and opinions that aren't always reflected in the uh, Greater Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod or our, our calling church bodies. Um, if you don't like our views and opinions, by all means, you can shut us off because that is the adult thing to do. Um, but if you'd like to torment yourself, if you're a masochist and and, and would like to, your ears to bleed, uh, keep listening and um, then come and ask questions later, and we'll be more than happy to, to answer those questions for you. If this makes any sense to our listeners, when I first met my daughter seven years ago, she made the first thing she said to me, and I kid you not, was just because you have a thought doesn't mean you need to verbalize it. And she automatically picked up the philosophy and the thought of all of my blood relatives. So that is something that kind of goes along with what we're talking about here, too. And so I apologize ahead of time. Well, I think our listeners who have followed us for 80-some-odd episodes have realized that um, we have no internal filter. <laughs> so yes. they should probably expect that. So without further ado, let's jump on into our, our topic at hand and uh, have some good conversation on the Augsburg Confession. Mm-hmm. 
So, Don, I want to I want to ask you a question. I want to start this off this conversation off correct and and right. And so, I'm going to ask you the question. We we're dear listener, we're using a, a kind of a varied study that that two different studies that we're kind of combining uh, as we talk about this to help lead with some of the questions. And I just thought one of the uh, the opening questions on one of the sheets that we have was just so pointed that I I would like to share it with you and uh, dear listener. And I would like Don to respond because it's it'll, it's a good jumping point. Uh, for our conversation. So here, getting started, uh, St. Pius Lutheran Church thinks they have come up with the perfect solution for their pastoral needs. They have figured out a way to no longer pay for a pastor's salary, his housing, health care, and mileage. Not only this, they will no longer have an outsider come in and tell them what to do and what to believe. They've decided that each member of the congregation will take his or her turn to in being pastor for the month. What problem do you see with this scenario at first glance? <laughs> Welcome to the Lutheran Comedy Hour. <laughs> So, uh, your first glance is laughter. <laughs> Sounds to me real reformed. Doesn't it, though? But it's that idea uh, and that many of us maybe have in our head um, that, that, you know, why the, the question of what, what is pastor really doing and why are we, and, and, and we'll just be honest, you know, the, the, the pastor being at church is an expense on the congregation. Um, it, it is one of the, the bigger expenses that a congregation may have. And, and so we may have a lot of people who question, what is it that pastor is doing? What is it that his purpose is? And, and why can't we do that uh, for ourselves and still be considered and call ourselves a church? And so it's actually not, it, I think probably that's the reason that that question just kind of floored me for a little bit, because I've, I've served I've served uh, numerous different congregations permanently and in vacancy over the last three decades and never ever encountered that type of attitude in any one of them. However, witnessed that attitude in 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 uh, mostly Baptist um, churches and Reformed churches as congregate as their congregations bantered that question around. I will say I find on the Lutheran side it almost to be on the other side of the spectrum of that question. We're almost where, uh, dear listeners, not every single Lutheran congregation is like this. Let's just put a little. Let's just put a little like battery meter up where the truth is in the middle, and you have extremes on each side. Lutheran, Lutheran thought in that idea doesn't tend to go towards what the question is. It tends to go towards more somewhere between Roman Catholic priest and and, and act, what actually a pastor is. Yeah, and, and I, I think that would be a very good way of explaining, and, and maybe it's because the Lutheran tradition comes out of, of Roman Catholic 
tradition predominantly. I mean, Luther didn't really want to go and and strip everything away from the the Catholic Church, like um, the reformed tendency. Uh, the, the reformed tendency was let's remove everything and and preserve nothing. Whereas, as Luther said, no, let's preserve what is good and wholesome, and and we'll move forward with that, and and we'll get rid of the stuff that detracts from the word and for the pronunciation of the gospel. And where I where I it, to answer to actually answer the question now after I've kind of got the funny bone untickled here and stuff is is to say this: looking at at, at Lutheran teaching. And what we're confessional Lutherans sit on this, and we're just going to take a look a little bit here at if you want to talk about church hierarchy. Christ is the head, then the congregation, and then comes the pastor. Although the past, that doesn't mean that the pastor doesn't have any authority. Uh, the pastor has authority when it comes to, to scriptural matters and, and so forth. That's something that's been given to him from Christ through the church. At, in the doctrine of the ministry. Now, that being said, you see Reformed counterparts, they don't see that, uh, they don't see that quite the way that Scripture lays this out. They'll look at Christ being the head of the church, but once we get down to the church itself, uh, I remember uh, one of my former members, a man by the name of Gary, um, I had the privilege of taking him through adult instruction class. He had, he had come from a more liberal Lutheran organization, but uh, always was in Bible study, um, just a faithful reader of his Bible, usually would come to Bible study or even just into my office during the week with some, some really, really deep questions. And I remember one time he asked me, Pastor, what, comes, what came first, pastor or the church? Okay. Now, I never heard a question like that, and I knew what the answer was to it immediately, but I knew that Gary had a specific situation in his mind. And so I said to Gary, I said, well, tell me exactly what's on your mind. Tell me why you're asking this question. And, uh, and he says, well, don't you know the answer? And I said, yes, I do. But I said, it helps to have a little bit of context so I can tailor the answer for, for your needs. And he said, "Okay." He said, uh, "He said one of the one of the neighboring towns, which was really close, uh, right inside the South Dakota border. Their Baptist church had a split. The pastor left and started his own congregation." Um, he goes, uh, "People are starting to squawk about that because the pastor, um, he 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 not only started the congregation, he is the church president. He's the church treasurer." He makes all the decisions. So pastor, which comes first, the pastor or the church? And I said, the church. And I said, actually, that pastor was out of line starting his own congregation because he did not receive a call to do so. And an inner call is not a divine call. Right. And, and actually, and, and dear listener, what we would probably say is, is when, you, when you deal with the calls and you deal with the ministry itself— the overarching ministry is the ministry of the word. That that's that's gospel ministry, um, and that gospel ministry is really all of our tasks. And then the congregation calls somebody who is trained to do that work on their behalf and is given the responsibility from the congregation to work on their behalf. And and and, and that's why, especially in our circles, we would say, 
that that uh, the one who holds that call to the ministry is the congregation, and then they call people with certain responsibilities to do that work. The pastor may be more wide-sweeping responsibility. We would have teachers, limited responsibility in a certain area of teaching um, for w- within a school. Um, but even, even the elders, right? Elders are called to help do that work. Board of Outreach called to do that work. Uh, Sunday school teachers called to do a portion of that work in, in certain areas of responsibility, all flowing from God through the congregation into those areas. Our Reformed counterparts would struggle with the question like they're, like kind of the congregations do. Does a pastor need, does a pastor need to have a formal education to be a pastor? And if he does, how much does he need? Um. Yeah, and and that is something that I see that Reformed counterparts have a uh, struggle with. Uh, some you will see that there's an extensive um, there, there's an extensive education. Some you know they'll go through maybe a junior college a year of junior college and be and and be considered qualified for ministry. And so there's a lot of questions there. To answer that question, does a pastor need to have an extensive college uh, or seminarial uh, theological education no but the church but but it's up for the calling body to determine what how much education or what type of education their pastors are to have our our confessional Lutheran church body the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod uh, the, the the Evangelical Lutheran Synod uh, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, the Con- uh, Church of the Lutheran Confession. Uh, our, our congregations uh, have, have uh, determined that they would like to have their pastors to have a four-year Bachelor of Arts, a, a degree if possible, um, and then also uh, four years of, or three years of, of seminary classroom work and a year of internship called the Vickership. Um, that is what our congregations have determined they want their pastors to have in order to serve and be able to serve as confessional Lutheran proclaimers of the gospel. And, and I would even just add to that, that, that sometimes, you know, and you've been in this position, I've been in this position, I don't even know if that's enough all the time, because we get yeah. into the actual parish and all of a sudden it's like you can get very overwhelmed with the, the, the day-to-day um, living with helping other people struggle with their own sinful nature and your own and, and, and having to, and to be refreshed, to be able to do this work, um, you know, four years and, and, and here's just a running trend. You come out of seminary, you spend about four years in your first congregation and you get a call and you go somewhere else. Why do most pastors, maybe not most, but why do a lot of pastors leave? Because they made some, some fundamental mistakes in that first call. And it was gracious from the congregation that they forgave those mistakes, um, but they made those fundamental mistakes because they were learning themselves how best to perform um, their call to the congregation. And and they maybe made some mistakes and they went to another congregation and now they're more refined. Um, you know, there's this idea of, of, of training that goes on in preparation that you're not a newbie just falling off the turnip cart in faith, that that you are not just um, this 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 person who just, you know, was brought into the kingdom and you're, you're on fire for a moment with all this new stuff. And, and, and then, and you haven't yet hit this, the, the, the long run and, and, you know, the endurance part 
of of what faith really truly is. Um, so let's let's before because we get we're going to be talking a lot about ministry throughout this conversation. So so maybe let's talk about about um, the part of the confessions that deals with with the centrality of of really what keeps this ministry intact and and it's the and it's the doctrine upon which right we would justly say um, the church the ministry stands or falls. Actually, which all doctrines of Scripture stand or fall. Um, the beautiful doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ Jesus. Actually, looking at that uh, to, to maybe to, to 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 maybe parse this out just a little bit more clearly. Uh, univer- uh, universal justification and subjective justification. And to get into that, we'll get into that here just in a in a in a few minutes. Uh, Justification is, is, is the doctrine on which Luther and the Lutheran confessors uh, make this statement, every scriptural, every other scriptural teaching rests or falls on the doctrine of justification. So let's, before we dive in, and, and we're going to have to unpack those terms, universal and subjective justification. But may, I, may I give a brief explanation of those? Just, just real brief. With, if you do that, but if, as you do that, give a definition of what justification is and, and its importance yeah. in term. Because justification think, is a term that is actually a courtroom term, which in its basic meaning means to declare innocent. And uh, we sometimes that's called forensic righteousness. Scripture teaches that God declared the whole world righteous um, at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We call that universal justification. But not that does not mean that everyone goes to heaven. That is not universal salvation. Scripture teaches that that justification is made subjective or personal through faith in Jesus Christ alone, which is a gift of, the, of God through the Holy Spirit and the means of grace, the gospel ministry. And so, uh, and so people say, some people will say, that doesn't make sense, Pastor. Well, look at this. And some people call, say it's just a crass explanation, but it is how Scripture des- describes it. The reason that people go to hell is because we cannot accept, we cannot accept Jesus. We can only reject him. And the reason because people go to hell is because they say, I don't believe, I reject that Jesus declared me innocent. I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to hell. That's basically in its simplest form. And and really the 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 wonderful declar- this wonderful declaration, if you if you want to really follow this subjectively in a way. You have this universal statement that that is declared over all people, right, from the courtroom of heaven, that we are we are not guilty because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Um, it is it is it has all been done. Now you either leave that courtroom living free as you are, subjective justification applied to you, or well, you brought it clearly this weekend, Reformation Sunday. Right, you either leave you leave the courtroom free living your life as one freed now in Christ and and everything that entails and we're not talking about the sanctification part of it we're talking about just the declaration part of it but you live your life with with everything that entails or you leave your live you you leave that courtroom saying to yourself that wasn't true that that never really happened 
Um, I'm still being watched. They're still laying in wait for me or, or whatever the case may be. And, and you, you've disregarded the entirety of that message. And, and this, this dear listener is the core the backbone of the very gospel ministry. This is, when we talk about gospel ministry, we, we, we always, it's framed in, and it's not law, what you must do, but it's always what Christ has done. And what has Christ done? He has done everything so that you are now declared not guilty. Now, now I, I would say that this is a change in a fundamental being of what most of our people, our listeners, maybe understand. So many people, I think, understand that once they become a Christian, they are fundamentally different. And, and I think you've heard it and I've heard it, that, that well, I'm a Christian now, so I'm, I'm fundamentally different. You're not fundamentally different. You haven't changed God You're fundamentally has... different for other reasons, but let's but <laughs> <Thanks. I> address. <laughs> but 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 really, you are not any different than you were before. The only difference is someone has declared over you that you are not you are no longer held accountable for the, your mistakes, your errors, your problems. Um, that that has been placed onto someone else. That that's a that is, and I know the scriptures do talk about about a change of heart. They talk about how how you know repentance is is changing course. But all of that is a is a reaction, right, to this declaration of not guilty. Um, that 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 the reaction is not the declaration. The declaration comes first, and and it then applies to us, and it is applied to and us. It, and it is a universal declaration. Uh, I can remember. Going back a long, long time ago, 39 years ago, while I was in college, and actually he is district president of uh, the Southeast Wisconsin District. Now, Dave Colander was a tutor in my dormitory. And as we were going through one of my, actually it was my turn to preach for chapel. And as he's going through my text with me, he's helping to reinforce in my mind that scriptural teaching of Universal of, of universal justification, um, and he told me this. He goes, Don. He says, He says, God, Jesus, God either declared the whole world innocent because of Jesus' death, or he did, or he didn't. Because if he didn't, how? No one can be sure. Did Jesus' death pay for my sins? This. This, this this is so gospel orientated because Jesus because God declared the whole world righteous all sin is covered every sinner is covered I never ever have to doubt that my sin no matter how grievous how bad was paid for well and that's and Luther will say something very similar where where when he he's teaching this doctrine and he's expressing this joy he says it is it is Christ from first to last that that without Christ and this declaration there's nothing there is no hope because there's always the question did I do enough have I done enough will I do enough um is what I've done accepted in any way shape or form there's there's always that that what if game that you played and when it's a declared statement over you, there's no what if. There, it is just a blanket statement. You are freed in Christ. You are forgiven. You are not guilty because of Christ. The, the statement is declared. It, it it stands the test of time, whether you like it or not. And this is bit. And this is a teaching that that permeates, that infests 
Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, just had been teaching this uh, uh, in the last week or two in an, in an adult instruction class, a Bible information class. Um, and it actually goes to, uh, um, it's a beautiful illustration in the life of, uh, of, of Abraham. Um, when God called Abraham and got, and then God said, he, he told Abraham had a vision and Abraham standing there with God and they had did this covenant and the covenant that was done that this contract that was so common among the people, you take two and two bulls, cut them in half and lay them and lay and, and lay them side by side so that there'd be a path between and the two contract makers would walk between them. In this instant, Abraham stood there and watched as God in the form of a fire pot, a lantern went through the middle by himself. That is God saying, it's not you, it's all me. That is gospel. That is the doctrine of justification to a T. Absolutely. It, 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 the, the doctrine of justification is everything Everything rests solely on God. Now, that, that plays itself out. Now, we're, we wanted to bring this fully back around and as our, we talked about ministry, right? And, and we asked that question of, um, are people in the pew, normal, everyday parishioners, ready to present this fact um, and ready to pronounce this this wonderful grace? And I would say that there are times, even my own ministry, I am I'm 11 years into the ministry. You are are just over 30. Um, I don't even know if I'm prepared to pronounce that fact um, every single Sunday. And I'm trained. I've been trained to do it. Uh, and I have been doing it every Sunday for worship since I've started uh, and, and I got my first call to a congregation. What makes us think that 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 people who who have not made it their life study to grow in the scriptures are going to be more prepared than those who have made it their life study? And I'm not saying that we're any better. I'm just saying there there is something to be said that that. Even those people who are all in in this, um, and and we every day we're working with the scriptures. We're struggling with how to pronounce this over and above everything else that it's so easy to do in life. Like it would be so much easier to tell people what to do. It'd be so much easier to say, "Live this way, do these things, and God will smile upon you." It's so much easier to do that. It's so much easier to be the pietist in my own life and say, "But I've done, I've done, I've done, and I'm the best at it." at least better than everyone else around me, I deserve. And and the doctrine of justification is so counter to that. It's it's so counter to that. Can I, you know, let me ask you a question here. I mean, and just because we have listeners from the pew here with us, is how many of our people, and I think this was maybe one of the reasons that, that I really thought it would be good to study or at least talk about the Augsburg Confession in our podcast here for a while, um, because it is the confession of the people. Uh, how many of our people truly understand that it is actually they, the congregations of our synod, that make the determination or that set up the determ or the, the qualifications required to be a pastor 
And it's not we, the pastors, who are making those decisions, may, or that, that have that that it's not the clergy making those those requirements. I would I would say that none of them. I think all of them have gotten to the point, and and this is I'm not judging. I'm just stating the fact. They've gotten to the point where where the the synod trains the trains them and tells them what they have to do before they can be qualified. But but a lot of that what they failed to realize was was fundamental in the very creation of the church. And but I think I think just before we say that and and really hammer that home, let's find out where and and realize that in the in the beginning formations of the Lutheran faith, it was educational. I, I mean, you had all of the the reformers that were pretty much they they were theologians, they were thinkers, they were university professors. Um, these are the people who who had spent their life studying the scriptures and translating the scriptures, and and they said, you know what? It's not just it, having a feeling isn't what's there. You have to have the head knowledge. You, you, there there is there's a part of saying that that you learn at the feet of Christ and you hear His words and you study them. Um, you, you, you study at the feet of the disciples as they, as they are journeying in the book of Acts and the pages of, of Acts. And you study the, the, the letters of Paul as he is continuing to reach out and encourage the congregations. You go back and you study you know, the, the, the founding of our faith with the founding fathers of, of faith, as well as the, you know, the people of Israel. And you walk with them throughout their, their mistakes and their times. You read from the pages of the Psalms and, and understand the Psalms and, and see them as the prayers of God. People, I mean, there's just a fundamental nature here that 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 I think our congregations fail to realize that is is intrinsic to Lutheranism, and what's intrinsic to Lutheranism is education in the Scriptures. And let's and let us remember. And I just want to be, be be clear about this because there's been some some of our people have confusion about about this as well, and it's that it is not our education that makes us a pastor. It is the call from the congregation. You can have all you you can you can study the Bible all you want and have constant have an endless amount of masters degrees and doctorates and PhDs or whatever in theology. That does not make you a pastor. What makes you a pastor is a call from the Lord Jesus through the local congregation. Right. But the local congregation um, as this whole structure was founded, said we want somebody who understands and yes. has studied the word and and takes very seriously not only the, the 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 confessions but what is it that God says and and look at the 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 intricacy of the ministry right the ultimate intricacy of the ministry is that you have a person who is called to teach to teach to preach to equip the saints for service to administer the sacraments. To administer the the very and use the very tools that God has given to declare justification, baptism, right? Um, you have a called, you have someone who is called on behalf of the congregation to step forward and say, on the behalf of the congregation, we pronounce to you through simple water and word the working of the Spirit in in burying you with Christ and raising raising you to new life as he has now justified you, declared you not guilty. To, to, to say to the congregation as we step forward, right, um, and we, we present this piece of wafer and wine, and, and there in that miraculous and, and mysterious union, um, 
we have Christ's body and blood and bread and wine as as he has said it's it, he is there and we pronounce once again you are free right you your sins are forgiven um go and live now in this freedom um we called on behalf of the congregation to administer in a visual way that justification um that in, in administer in a visual way that gift that God has given. And then also to do it from the pulpit, to do it from, from the front of the altar, um, to do that uh, for our people in Bible study as we, we relay these things. Those are part and of our call. We'll get, and we will get to, to a specific part here in the, confe- in the Augsburg Confession dealing with the call itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's not something that you can just stand up and, and, and say, okay, I'm going to take this upon myself. Um, you know, these are, these are, these are, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But that, but that brings up that, that takes us right back full circle to my original illustration, like the Baptist preacher in Eastern South Dakota, who decided I'm going to start my own congregation, build my own building. Um, he took it upon himself, which is something that scripture um, and, and that that scripture is clearly outlined in the in the Lutheran confession, confessions, especially Augsburg, um, uh, that 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 says no, that that is that is not how it works. Absolutely, and and you see the ministry of the and, and how it works, right? Why do we highlight the ministry? Why do we highlight the 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 use of the gospel and the sacraments? And that's because we are we are not. I'm going to use the word charismatic. We're not charismatic in the sense of um, that that we believe God is just going to strike somebody as they walk down uh, the sidewalk, and all of a sudden they're, oh, hey, I believe. Um, you know that the, the ultimate question. I, I'm I've been asked it. You've been asked it. Maybe, dear listener, you're asking it. God can do anything. Why can't He do that? Yes, God can do anything. But the reason he doesn't just strike people with faith as they walk down the street is because he has said he will work through means. And that is the gospel ministry. God keeping his promise to work through means. And the means are his word and the sacraments. Those are the means. That's the ministry. The ministry consists of those things because those are the promises that God has said. I am going to be here present and working in this. And I'm going to do it in this way, and and we say, well, why? Why wouldn't it be more flashy if he did it somewhere else? Well, yes, but the fact of the matter is, the foolishness of God is wiser than 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 man. What what, what did Jesus do that was flashy? Exactly, but we want it, right? I let's yeah. let's just face it. Let's well, no, I mean, if you think about it, let's let's just go through a couple of the things that we think are tremendous that we wish would happen. And we have failed to tr- truly think logically through it. So let's say we were the disciples on the boat, right? And the waves are kicking up and the wind is blowing and the storm is raging and the lightning is flashing and Jesus is asleep in the bow. And uh, we cry out and we say, Lord, help us because we truly believe that the, the whole ship is going to sink, right? And Jesus wakes up and he whispers, right? He speaks to the storm and he says, be still. And it is still. And he looks out at the disciples and he says, you of little faith. Now we all look at that and we're like, wow, if only in my life he would come and he would just calm the storms like that, then I would believe, right? How, what a tremendous thing. 
Now, think of it this way. What an indictment Jesus had on those disciples. The fact that Jesus was in the boat. He's the Son of God. Do you really think God's going to sink that boat? Just because he was sound asleep, do you really think God was going to sink that boat with his son in it? And they were all concerned and all worried. And then he wakes up and, and what little faith. What little faith that he would protect them, even though he was he was resting um, as, as man. And they, didn't, and they didn't get the beautiful message that Jesus was preaching to them. He was sleeping through it all. Yes, there was nothing to worry about. Yes. Absolutely nothing to worry about. And and yet um and yet they were they were concerned about it, right? Um yep. how many times how many times are are these marvelous things an indictment on 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 our own sinful natures? Um you know, I think the confessions say it so beautifully when in contact with why does God choose um to to use means and and it was right at there at the end of article 5, right? Where where the, the confession writers say, our churches condemn the Anabaptists and others who think that through their own preparations and works, the Holy Spirit comes to them without the external word. And I think there, there you have it. Um, everybody else thinks that, that, that all of a sudden there's this, you'd called it that inner call, right? You know, God spoke to me. God, I, I went to sleep one night and God spoke to me. God speaks to you through his word, right? Um, when was the last time God ever spoke to you? When was the last time you read the Bible? When, well, you know what? When you look at these inner calls and when people, when people say God spoke to me, how come it's always really just nice, fluffy, peaceful stuff and it's never getting a slap upside the head saying, where the heck are your brains? Absolutely. Or where have you been lately? Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's the other thing. It, it, every time someone has an inner call, it's never it's never an inner call condemning somebody of sin. It's always the, oh, but you're so nice. Um, you know, I I was I was been listening lately. Um, to uh, and I've been having to re re listen because they're kind of difficult to catch everything. But the screw tape letters. I don't know if you've you've read those from C.S. Lewis. Um, I've, I've, I've been going back and re-listening because what, uh, what a play on the natural human condition, right? Um, yes, full screw tape. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Wormwood. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, and I'm very disappointed in, 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 in how you've been handling the situation. <laughs> anyway, listen to the, listen to the screw tape letters. You'll understand what we're talking about. But, but no, how, how, you know, one of the points in the screw tape letters is, is you get people to be comfortable, right? Get them to be comfortable in their own sin and to justify that they're still doing God's word without actually engaging in the external word and sacrament. Um, and that was one of those things where, where they said, keep them away from the church. And, 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 and throughout that entire thing, it's always keep them away from the church because even if they don't believe, being in contact with word and sacrament will produce faith. And that was one of the things that, that I mean, that was part of Screwtape. Um, Screwtape was telling Wormwood, you cannot let him continue even, even, without, even if he's questioning his belief, go to church. 
because being in church, he will be in contact with the word and sacrament, and it will produce something. Amen. And that's ministry. Yep. You know, we I just as I'm kind of monitoring the clock here, um, wanting to make sure that we that we take a look at these, at least get a chance to discuss some of these other articles that we haven't quite touched with here. Uh, marriage of priests in monastic vows. Well, um, before we hit those, before we hit those, just I want to give a quick read of, of Article 14, and that's the order uh, um, the order of the church. And that's really, I'll just read it. And, and you need not have to comment much about it because I think it's self-explanatory. And it's simply this. Our church teaches that no one should publicly teach in the church or administer the sacraments without a rightly ordered call. So in other words, what we just discussed here, right? But but that's we don't take, the person individual does not take the call upon themselves. Um, we don't seek the call. Uh, this is something that is the hallmark of confessional Lutheranism. The call seeks the man, not the other way around. And and just as a as another point before we move on to the ministry uh, to the to the other orders, um, I just want to say. If I'm called to St. John in in Maribel, Wisconsin, I am called there. I am not called to Zion and Cologne. I'm I am not their pastor. I'm not called there. Just like you being called at Zion and Cologne are not called to be the pastor at St. John. So so I shouldn't call you up and ask you how busy you are. No, you shouldn't call me up and ask how busy I am, or or if I can take something else on and serve some other some other congregation, because that's not my call. Now, if a congregation approaches me and they go through and they rightly call, that's a totally different thing, right? Yes. So, okay, let's move on. Let's let's go for where where we wanted to go. We want to go to the marriage of priests and monastic vows. So in in like eighteen minutes, let's let's sum up that conversation. Let's give a, a little bit of a history of. Uh, um, I'm a you are you and I are uh, you're you're a little bit more detail oriented than I am as a historian. Would you like to explain just briefly, if possible, how it got to be that clergy was not married in the Catholic Church? Um. Yeah, actually, that was because of uh, there was a um, uh, a Roman pontiff, uh, a pope, who one day, well, he was he was brought into the papacy and he was unmarried, and um, because essentially it started because everything, every utterance of the pope is considered to be a monastic or a a, um, a papal order. Um, he had made an utterance that said, you know, it is a it's a good thing for. Um, those who are in the ministry, uh, priests, not to be married so that they could devote all of their time to the bride of the church um, and, and be be a part of that. And that became essentially the establishment of now no priest should be married because they're married to the church and therefore going to devote their entire time to it. Now, if you wanted to have some of the the names, I don't know if I can come up with the, the actual name of the pre or the Pope that had that. Um, 
it was something that basically came about it gradually it with did. Rome with Rome's tendency to emphasize the fact that uh, the flesh living living a life of the flesh is worth is is not as good as living the life of a, of the spirit and we're not talking here about about sinful nature new man we're just talking about flesh and spiritual things and so uh, this is this is something that this is something that manifests itself in a lot of roman catholic teaching um uh, the way it is uh, it, it 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 also affects roman catholic teaching and how they look at um, uh, it's basically it, it, it well it, it, it explains today why the current pope now is uh, is well not really he hasn't really changed Roman Catholic Church teaching in in one and now blessing same sex unions because Rome has has looked at for centuries that the only purpose for marriage is to have children. Right. Um, that the life of a, that the life of celibacy is a higher calling, a higher form of Christian life because it's not a life of the flesh. Um, and so it, 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 this 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 garbage weaves its way throughout a lot of Roman Roman Catholic Church teaching. So just to give you a little bit idea, dear listener, if you want to know how the, a lot of this started, um, in, in 304 A.D., Canon Law number 33 of the Council of, of Elvira stated that all bishops, uh, presbyters, and deacons must remain chaste and abstain completely from their wives while holding any church office uh, so that they would not have any children who would inherit any church lands. Um, and so that was then overturned. Uh, oh no, sorry, not overturned. It was it was in 325 the Council of Nicaea convened and Constantine rejected that ban, so it was overturned. And then it was reestablished in the Middle Ages in the 11th century with Pope Benedict the Eighth, who responded um, with this uh, with a remark saying that there was a decline in priestly morality uh, because they were having way too many children who were inheriting um, church lands, and so. Um, they established this rule that that they no longer could could be married. A few decades later, with Pope Gregory the Seventh, he finally issued the clerical decree that um, there would be no marriages, and and it was upheld then in the Second Council, let Lateran Council in eleven thirty nine. So there you go. And, and I think it was the Second Lateran Council where it declared. A church, a world, uh, a church-wide, worldwide divorce of yes. the priest. Yep, that's a, Yep, yep, yep. And then it was reaffirmed again in 1563, shortly after. <laughs> uh, shortly right. after the the confessions. <laughs> yes. So that was at the Council of Trent, where they doubled down on on the celibacy of of the clergy. So there's a little but, bit of history. Let's make this a little bit more practical than today for. For current, uh, for current Christianity, uh, speaking as uh, as clergy, uh, and and you just and realize, dear listener, you're just getting the cup. You're getting the opinion. You're getting the opinion of a couple of of a couple of morons here. But I think I, I think you'll find this same opinion among uh, the majority of uh, of of confessional Lutheran clergy. 
what are the pros? There, there are pros and cons to being a single clergyman and to be a married one. And there are pros and cons on each side. Absolutely. I think, I, I, I think, well, first of all, let's just, let's just say it right now for any congregation who, who has a pastor of theirs who is single it does not mean that the pastor now has dedicated their entire life, uh, every breathing, waking moment to the church and to, to her service. Um, so please take this as just because you may have a single pastor um, does not mean that, that you've now um, have a, a, a one who gives more time or should be giving more time to the ministry. Now, the only way we should be emulating the priesthood is that he is, is chaste. Absolutely, that that he's not um, misusing that that not being married and misusing um, that re- that relationship in a bad way. Now, I, I think there is some benefits though to to one who's not married. I, I think they have, um, if they're able to practice self control. Um, I mean, they do have a lot more time to devote to things. Um, that are are important within ministry. Probably more time to devote to reading, to study, to to things of that nature, um, as they they have opportunity for personal growth and advancement. But I think also for the for on the side of a married, uh, being married myself, I'm happily married um, for 16 years by the grace of my wife. By the way, um, I have bamboozled her for 16 years, and I intend to keep it up. <clears throat> so that so that she is she is always bewildered as to to the benefits of being married to me. Um, <clears throat> but there is there is great benefits, right? Um, there's the idea of of learning, especially as men, we we learn to communicate better as being married to to our 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 wives. They make us better communicators. They allow us to understand intricacies within our own congregation better because our members are are in those relationships, right? Um, we can understand those feelings, those emotions, those things that come up. Um, we can understand and help guide them through controlling those, guide them through uh, understanding the steps of marriage and how it will work and, and, and navigating some of those rough waters that come in, in this. And also the children that come through it. Uh, we can understand what it's like to raise children, God willing, what it's like to, to be under a microscope in that respect and still say, this is how we can do things. I'd like to say as, as uh, somebody who's actually, I have served in the ministry, single and married, that, uh, that uh, I agree with everything you've said. And I just want to add something that uh, ministry is a whole lot easier with a faithful wife. Um, uh, the, 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 just the blessing that she is not only to, to the husband, the pastor, but also to the congregation. Um, it's just unspeakable in so many ways. I've said this about my own. I will say the same thing about about yours. My congregation loves my wife more than me, and they should. Um, and there's good and there's good reasons for that. Um, and so, just thinking about these things here too. You know, October is Pastor Appreciation Month. I really feel that instead of a pastor appreciation month, there needs to be a pastor's wives appreciation month. Honestly, and I, I just got to do this because I thought it was 
the sweetest thing I've ever seen. One of my members came in and, and she had a box of, of, uh, um, muffins for me for pastor appreciation. And right on top of the muffins were some hand knit uh, mittens, just beautiful mittens, um, that were for Jen, for, for my wife. And, and she said, these are for her because we forget to sometimes say thank you for everything that, that they have to go through too. Because I come home and I can't tell her everything that's gone on in the day because maybe I had a meeting about whatever or a counseling session with somebody, but they know that I am distraught or that I am, I'm, I'm coping with things. And, and, you know, our wives, they listen, right? Um, they, they are there to support in the background to keep us sane. Um, and there are times when the congregation drives, can drive you nuts and, and you're like, okay, um, I don't know what to do. And it's our wives that calm us down and say, okay, we're going to take this one day at a time. Just take a breath and, and we're going to work our way through this. Um, you know, there is this wonderful interplay between a husband and a wife and especially a husband and a wife in ministry. Um, when, when the pastor and, and his wife are, are, are working together. And I just want to say unequivocally, as clearly as I can, living in the parsonage by yourself sucks. <laughs> yes, and it gets pretty, and, and that's the opposite side. You know, we have a couple of members who are, a couple of pastors who are single. Um, right in your circuit, there's one. Yes. And and you as the circuit pastor are looking out for him and, and, and having to call and talk with him and make sure that his congregation is doing so because... They can get lost and and their feelings and and you know get kind of bottled up and and they can kind of get lost in the shuffle of the machine that is the church um, without somebody looking looking out for them and our wives do a wonderful job as we look out for them too they look out for us just like you would have in any normal family setting. Yes, and so I think there's and and I think I, I coming back to what the confessions say right uh, the the reason behind why. Um, marriage is such an important thing that even the priests, the pastors should engage in it is because it is the first gift that God has given, right? Not good for the man to be alone. Exactly. And and this was, a, it was intended. It was intended in the garden that that man would be married. Um, this is a fourth commandment, right? This is fourth commandment. You can't have a mother and a father without marriage. Um, why is it that that if it is it is given that marriage bed should be honored, right? Sixth, com- um, yeah, sixth commandment that it, that that the marriage bed should be honored. Why is it that that we all of a sudden say, oh, but for a priest, the marriage bed doesn't have to be honored because you can't be married? Yeah, it, for for it, it's not good for the man to be alone, but it's good for the priest to be alone. Well, but you know, and here's the thing, and I I heard this through the grapevine, so you know, don't don't kill the messenger, but I heard this through the grapevine that that many, in the past, many and probably still today, many Catholic priests had a quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, everybody, a maid, that lived in the in the the church rectory, um, that everyone knew wasn't quite the maid. Let's be careful with with that, okay? Let's not. Now, I'm not killing. Let's, let's don't kill the let's messenger. Not violate, let's not violate the eighth commandment. I've, I and like I said, this is this is things that I've heard, and and the reason, and it wouldn't be, yes, okay. So maybe we can't say it, but it wouldn't be outside of the realm of possibility because it's not good for for someone to be alone. Yes, it's not healthy for them. 
And it we keeps have, away all the rest of the lusts and other things that, that can be so entrapping. Let's 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 take up monastic vows here um, just a little bit because we have about a, we have a few minutes left and, and this really fits right in with, with the priesthood. Monastic vows were vows that priests took, vows such as vows of poverty. Um, one one being the vow of celibacy. Um, and actually, that that this Article Twenty Seven on monastic vows takes up something that the that the early Lutheran reformers hit really well, um, because you know about when Scripture talks about a vow, it talks about uh, about keeping it, being faithful to that vow. This was something that a lot of priests were struggling with. Well, I made this vow; it's okay to be married. How do I justify this? And and Article 27 brings up very well that God does not hold us to vows that are unscriptural. When scripture, you can't make a you can't make a vow for something that scripture doesn't command or doesn't forbid. And so if it doesn't, if scripture doesn't speak speak clearly to it, you're not held to those vows that you made in ignorance or even willfully. Because scripture is the ultimate authority. And, and I think this sums it up. Let's, you know, you're talking about it and let, let's sum it up. The, um, the, the monastic vows were, were something that, that over time became um, this meritorious work. And, and listen to what, what, what Article 27 has to say about that. It says, so they made people, and I like this, so they made people believe that the profession of monasticism was far better than baptism and that the monastic life was more meritorious than that of rulers, pastors, and others who serve in their calling according to God's command without any man, without any man-made services. None of these things can be denied. It's like when my, when I, it's like when I was still living at home, told my parents that my grandparents that my Catholic grandparents that I was going to become a Lutheran minister, I was told, and they didn't, they, they came around after a while. But at first my grandpa's reaction was you're going to hell. I gave him a hug and I said, grandpa, I'll see you there. Um, <laughs> a few months later, my cousin Mike says that he's going to, to going to go to Catholic seminary to be a priest. And my grandfather says he's going to save us all. Yep. Yeah. Well, and that was the belief that if you were a, a monk, you would say pr- that you would you would not just say prayers for yourself, but as you're saying prayers, you were saying prayers for everybody who couldn't pray. Um, but this is let's let's be fair. Let's let's be fair to everybody here that our sinful nature thinks this way. Our sinful nature thinks that if I can build up what I believe to be higher callings, then I must be doing something better for the for God and for the church. Um, and, and, and it's easy for pastors to get into that mindset as it is for parishioners to get into that mindset. You know, it's not, it's not too far away from pastors saying, you know what, I have showed up for church every Sunday because, and, and then forget that's our job, but I yep. showed up for church every Sunday. Therefore I must be better than the rest of those heathens that don't show up every Sunday. I like how the Augsburg confession says it really, and I'm going to summarize and put it into my own words that the vow God makes to us in baptism Nothing supersedes any vow that a priest or any Christian can make. God's vow in baptism to us is the ultimate. Oh, absolutely. And and that's that coming back to the declaration, right? God 
declares you already perfect, sinless, justified um, through baptism. That is a promise. That is, that is a vow. Um, and anything you do can't make you better than that. It's like saying, it's like saying, okay, I've got a white, I've got, I got a white wall, just painted white. It's as white as white can be. If I add more white to it, it's still white. I can't, I can't make it better. Can't make it better than it already is. No, you take a white piece of paper. Does that make it privileged? I don't think we want to go there. Just asking. <laughs> now I now I can't stop thinking about that comment. <laughs> maybe it's, maybe it's just a good way to segue into our closing. <laughs> yes, maybe that would be a good way to go. Before we go downhill too far. As we're talking, what we want you to understand is that is that really, you know, all of this is hinging on on really Article Four, that the the justification um, and and the declaration of being not guilty, all of these things start flowing from there. Oh, the ministry, the call. Um, why is it that we can enjoy marriage, uh, and and why why is it that we can for a short time enjoy vows? of saying, I'm going to with, withhold myself from enjoying these certain things. You know, monasticism wasn't a bad thing when it was voluntary. It wasn't a bad thing. If, if someone wanted to take the time to go away and study the scriptures and kind of focus on that and then leave and re-enter life. That, I mean, even, the, even the, the, the writers of the confessions, Luther himself said those weren't bad things. It was when they were started to be made to trump uh, and, and sort of trump the 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 word and trump the sacraments and start to be taking place of uh, the commands of our Lord and the grace that He's given. Then there's a problem. Yes. And Jesus, I, Jesus, only Jesus. Yeah, and, and if we are preaching something other than Christ and Him crucified, um, as Paul so wonderfully says to the Corinthians, then we've got a problem. We, we've definitely, absolutely have a problem. Um, so, dear listener, uh, we will continue our look at the Augsburg Confession, um, but we're going to have to wrap it up for today, and we'll, we'll talk more about more stuff next week. What do you got? And, and, just, to, and just something to fuel or whet your appetite for it to, and to, to keep you coming back. I just have to say that as we've been talking about this doctrine of justification and, and has how it's spelled up out in the Augsburg Confession, I like to bring up my term closet Catholics. We talk so much about how Catholicism looks at these things. The Reformed look at it the same way, but just through different glasses. <laughs> <laughs>